0: eric yeah
1: what are you doing sorry nervous habit sorry just shaking my water yeah all right okay i'll stop sorry
0: yeah look i just i need to get my notes i know i know i'm sorry for the episode
1: nervous tick sorry no i'll put it down putting it down right now yep putting it down nothing in my hands nothing in my hands nerds on history i am eric brickmont and i am brian moriarty and i am alive you are barely despite nature's best odds or the best efforts i should say you know you would think it was the coma
0: that may have done you in but no no simple bug
1: well i don't know how simple it was listeners if you hear my voice i've i've it's strained for a reason past uh, three days i've had a horrible fever and uh i have been laid up in bed My whole family quarantined for me so the baby doesn't get sick. So I've been alone, sad, pathetic, in my home, feeling like complete and utter garbage.
0: You're quarantined. I'm in a rabbit suit right now. Which, I mean, do you know how long it took me to get the mic into the helmet? Hours. (laughs) Hours.
1: Yeah. But I'm feeling a lot better. Fever's gone. Voice is a little strained. But as they say in show business, the show must go on. I think they say that right. You're in show business, you tell me.
0: Uh, they do. For the most part, it's the understudy goes on, but we don't, well, <laughs> we don't really good. have one for you, uh, do we? Well, I
1: am my own understudy. Yeah, which... Well, kind of defeats the purpose, yeah. It does, yeah. A bit. yeah. Let's yeah. get into some listener feedback. I love listener feedback! This week in Listener Feedback. So, I think most of our listener feedback actually comes from Facebook this week, doesn't it?
0: This is true, yes. Our first feedback is from Danielle who writes to us from Northeast Ohio. She writes, Hey nerds, still trying to get caught up on all the past episodes of both podcasts. I've been listening consistently over the past couple months while uh, at work and during my commute. I am not Catholic, so working as a janitor in a small Catholic school slash church has been interesting. Thanks Brian for your Catholic knowledge. It's helped a lot. I have a long list of movies from the NOF that I need to watch, but regardless, I love all the discussion and nerdiness on both podcasts. I can't wait to get caught up, yet I'll be sad when I don't have enough episodes to fill a full night of work. Keep it up, guys.
1: Well, I have a very simple solution for that, Daniel. You go back and you listen to our episodes a second time, but this time you slow them down to about one-tenth their normal speed, and then you'll have, oh, what, at least another three years' worth of content to listen to.
0: She'll also have a psychotic episode (laughs) (laughs) as well.
1: Well, we're just going to have to keep putting out more content then. That's just the only thing we can do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Danielle, And we're happy to uh, entertain you at work. Uh, We have one other piece of listener feedback. This is also from Facebook. This comes from our friend, Athena. She has left several pieces of uh, great feedback before in the past. It's been a little while since we've heard from her. And she really only includes a link. And that link uh, is uh, to an article that talks about a recent discovery by a team in Amsterdam, a team of physicists, actually, uh, who have done a kind of a small-scale reconstruction of the way that the the pyramid blocks were moved in the construction of the Great Pyramids in Giza and Egypt. And uh, they've discovered that by using between 2 and 5% of water per volume of sand in front of the, the sled carrying the block that they could actually move it across the sand unaided by other methods, right? Like like building a a track, which is what it has been experimented with previously. What I kind of have an issue with is that all these news articles and and news websites and what have you are saying that this is like the breakthrough of the century. You know, this is the this is the first time anyone's ever thought of doing this. But it's not. <laughs> I would say
0: it's a breakthrough in that it probably explains how the ancients did it
1: no no no. we've known that the Egyptians used water in front of their sleds to move the sleds in an easier fashion the the, we've been doing this for a long time experimental archaeology has been working with it for ages uh there's a really great PBS documentary several years old now called this old pyramid it was a nova special fantastic where they went and tried to use the the tools of the trade tools of the time to actually build a pyramid right complete with, you know, excavating the blocks from the limestone quarries and putting them on sleds and moving them. And they tried different techniques, some with rollers, some on a track, and they found that by wetting it in every situation made it move easier. Now, I will admit, though, that there's a difference between what they did in the documentary and what other experiments have done and this, in that they uh, were doing it just on the sand. But uh, it's worth noting that they did it in the small scale only. So they haven't actually tried it full size. And I'd be interested in seeing their results uh, to, to do that. Uh, I understand why they're doing it small scale. It's a lot easier, obviously. You don't have to travel to Egypt and get a big limestone block. And it's
0: not nearly ex- as expensive either.
1: Well, certainly. But, you know, come on. If you're going to say that this is probably the way they did it, I want you to actually go to Egypt and try it. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, Athena, thank you so much for the link. Uh, it was a very interesting read. And uh, as always i love to talk about anything that relates to Egypt. Of course you do. Well, you know what it's time for?
0: Time for us to get on to the
1: topic? Yes, indeed. May
0: I suggest
1: something? So this week's topic comes to us from a listener suggestion not that long ago, actually. remember me? Oh, yes, of course. They wrote in a couple weeks ago. Yeah, and uh, she had suggested, or he had suggested, it had suggested, because me doesn't really have a gender, does it? Let's do a topic about kick-ass women. Women who literally were warriors, who went out there, who stood out and made their name in history because of it.
0: Yes, and we could probably talk about the more well-known people. We could talk about Cleopatra, Elizabeth I, and the names go on and on. But we thought it'd be interesting to really talk more about the people you haven't heard of. And no, there's one that you definitely will have heard of tonight, yeah. but everything else is fairly an obscure name, you know?
1: Yeah, unless you are from that country of origin, you may not really uh, know them off the top of your head, there which you is go. good, because that's what we do. We, we educate you folks. But I think before we get there, we really have to kind of set the stage for this whole conversation. Right? Sure. Because in our modern world today, there is pretty much zero difference between the way men and women uh, function in society, there really is zero difference. Men and women are equal in intelligence. They are equal now because of laws that have been able to uh, be in effect, at least in the past hundred years or so, across most countries in the world, which you know give equal standing in terms of being able to work the same jobs, get the same amount of pay, all of these things that, that women have you know fought hard for to to be recognized. I think that's
0: very true in American society, but I really want to qualify that statement and say that the the struggle for women's rights continues in many countries. Saudi Arabia being one of them. Uh, Pakistan, there's been issues with the Taliban trying to suppress women in recent times. Afghanistan, most notably. Afghanistan, yes, of course. Uh, And even though we have made great strides from the legal perspective... I think socially, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done.
1: Sure, and, and and don't confuse my words. I think maybe I was wording that badly. Absolutely, I I agree completely. But I think it is much more universally acknowledged now, even if it isn't n- universally uh, acted upon everywhere in the world, that men and women are equal. Would you agree with that? Eh, eh. Okay. But but we'll, we'll, maybe I'm we'll... a little bit more of an optimist then.
0: And I share your optimism in that I I I view women as equal, and I think that's what you're trying to say. We yeah. view women. As equal, and we're just kind of your average Joes, you know. That being said, I do feel like there are non-verbal systems that are in place, and it's hard to, and I say this, of course, as the the majority, you know, unfortunately, politically, the white male. I do still think that unless we're on in the other person's perspective, we're not really ever going to fully know to the full extent of the inequality that exists. Sure. I agree. So, I yeah. agree. I, I don't ever want to feel like, not not to go on, sorry, not to go on the tangent of white guilt at all, but I just don't ever want to, to feel like we're not aware of the, of what could be the
1: problem. That's all. Sure. Well, let's talk about how we kind of got to that place too, though, because it, it is important to the topic for, for tonight. And what it comes down to in anthropo- anthropological circles is the uh, sexual division of labor. And this is something that really springs up about 50,000 years ago in hunter-gatherer societies. And it was all about what made the most sense for men and women to be doing to contribute the most to the society that they lived in. And, and keep in mind, this is very different than the culture that we live in today. So these rules that were set up then don't apply today, but they do see, they do show us at the very least, you know, where we are today and why.
0: Okay, so elaborate.
1: So if you live in a, in a hunter-gatherer society, what are, your, what are your two primary responsibilities? And I'll give you a hint, it's in the title of the type of society you live in.
0: You hunt and you gather because, and well, to, let's bring it down, survival. Yeah. Your goal is you need to eat in order to survive. Oh, you need to copulate as well so that you could you can have the next generation of hunters and gatherers. But you either need to pick the food or you need to kill the food.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and chances are you need to be doing both. Yes. To be able to support your community, to make people as healthy as possible, to produce as many healthy offspring as possible. And for the two different sexes, there were two different jobs, and one just happened to be more appropriate than the other. Men, biologically, have about 40% more upper body strength than women generally do. Okay, so that's on the bell curve. So there's going to be exceptions to that, obviously, right? There's going to be men who are weaker than women and, and vice versa, but weaker in the sense of upper body strength only. Lower body strength, pretty much equal. That has been scientifically proven. But when you are out there hunting and you are, you know, killing these wild animals before they kill you, having the upper body strength is your advantage. If you're a gatherer, you have smaller hands generally, as women are smaller in body mass than, than men are as well. And they are more apt to be able to gather quickly, essentially, and bring more food back to the tribe. Pretty simple. It has nothing to do with putting women in their place, so to speak, Right. as as some male chauvinists would have you believe. has nothing to do with that. And the truth of the matter is women are more valuable than men for one very simple reason. Men cannot have babies. Women can. Without the ability to reproduce, your society will disappear. Men who were out there hunting were expendable. If a man was killed, it didn't matter because there were other men that could come back, copulate with the women, produce more children. If a woman was killed, it was a huge blow to that community. So by being a gatherer, generally, you're able to keep yourself in a safer environment and protect that investment, which is your own biology, your own physiology. Also, natural selection plays a role here. Those men who went out there and got killed during you know, the hunt, chances are they were not as strong as the other men who survived the hunt. So it's actually kind of weeding out the weaker genes and making sure it's the stronger men who are surviving and bringing those genes back to the community. Now, once you stopped being a hunter-gatherer, you started settling down. You started growing crops, you started herding your animals instead of going out and hunting them, and society changed. Civilization was born from this. And that role of you know, these, you know, sexual division of labor continued into this new society. Men were brought out to the fields where they were working with you know, animals and heavy plows and things like that. So they replaced the hunting with you know, heavy machinery, so to speak, things like the, of that time. And uh, women stayed behind and ran the industry, created trade, uh, created all of these things that are recognizable in our society today, sadly, only to have it taken over by men. And there was a big shift. You know, There was once this concept of the mother goddess being the predominant one. The celebration of, of childbirth was extremely important in most proto-religions. When communities and culture and civilization really start to flourish and develop, that starts to change. And that goddess, in many cultures, flips. And it now becomes a much more male-dominated, not just religion, and but society.
0: What's the catalyst? What's the, I mean, is there anything that's universal that speaks to that
1: shift? Well, you know, it, it really comes back to this division of labor, You know, it becomes a tradition. It becomes set so much in place that it's difficult then to break out of that. Even when your society changes and doesn't necessarily need it any longer, there are certain things that are in place now that make it difficult to to leave that. And not every society did this. There's plenty of exceptions to this. Uh, One of them, the ancient Egyptians, still retained a real important sense around women and that mother goddess— And that whole idea that uh, women could have much more equality towards their male counterparts than other societies at that time awarded women. Uh, And I think this is actually a good place then to kind of jump into today's topic, right? And start talking about these powerful women and uh, a good place in history to start. Uh, When we were doing our research, there was one woman who really stood out to me. And not just because of my already existing knowledge of her, uh, but just because I thought it would be so perfect to kind of have it stretch the whole gamut of time. And uh, I'm talking about Ahotep. Who? Exactly. <laughs> this is definitely one of those lesser known individuals. Uh, Ahotep was a, a very powerful queen in a very unusual time in Egyptian history. You've heard of me talk about dynasties before, right? And kingdoms. Sure. So we have the old kingdom, middle kingdom, new kingdom. These are all periods of prosperity, political stability, you know, revolution in terms of art and science and warfare and all of these things. This was not one of those times. Okay. This is one of the in-between times. Gotcha. Uh, the second intermediate period is the the formal name for it that we give it today. So
0: this is between Middle and New Kingdom.
1: Correct. Excellent. Uh, this is a time circa 1560 BCE. Okay. When Egypt wasn't even in control of itself. There were foreign invaders to the north who had, over many years, slowly started inhabiting this area, which is called the Nile Delta.
0: So would this be the Greeks we're talking about at this point?
1: Not quite yet. Or the Persians? Greeks would come about later, the Persians would come about later. Okay. Uh, these were called the Hyksos.
0: Hyksos, okay.
1: And it's actually a derivative of the ancient Egyptian word for rulers of a foreign land. So uh, we don't know a lot about them from their own perspective, because they were definitely uh, outsiders who came in, who set up shop, who had their own dynasties uh, in the north, uh, the 15th and 16th dynasties. And they ruled as kings in their own right. They were heavily Egyptianized. They traded with the Egyptians proper in the south. And there was a period of kind of peace between these two, but uh, eventually that would come to an end. The Egyptians wanted to reclaim all of their homeland, all for themselves, and sought to expel these, uh, these invaders. It's interesting, though, because their origin is most likely Semitic, really. Yeah, it's very likely based on the the names of the kings of that of that period of of the Hyksos, uh, that they came from what is now modern day uh, Palestine Israel. Okay. And even before that, there was an infusion of Canaanites who had come and lived peacefully in kind of like a um like a vassal state almost within Egypt. In uh, a time when Egypt was still more politically stable. So there was a lot of influx coming from this area of the Levant. Okay. Uh, you would be interested in this. There, And this is a whole other topic for another episode, but there are some who suggest that the exodus of the Jews may actually be directly tied to the Hyksos, that they may actually be the Israelites in Egypt. Oh. It's a theory. It's one of those kind of thinking out of the box kind of theories. Nonetheless, I think we should. Definitely talk about it at some point in a future episode.
0: Yeah, that would be very interesting, especially when you talk about the Canaanites yep. living in there too. You know, you want to bring up that Semitic and Egyptian relation that's going on there. Uh, just to clarify, too, folks, for those who don't know, Semitic does not just mean those of Israeli or Jewish heritage; it also refers to anybody who is in in the Arabic Peninsula.
1: Exactly. Arabic itself is a Semitic language. Yes. So let's bring it to Ahhotep because now. Uh, we've kind of set the stage, right? The Hexos need to go. And the person to be able to do that originally was Ahotep's husband, uh, the pharaoh Sekenre Ta. Now, Sakenre Ta, ruler of the 17th dynasty, uh, his you know predecessors had pretty much, like I said, coexisted with the Hexos, had been okay with Egypt almost becoming a vassal state. Uh, this was going to be no more. He decides to raise troops, lead them in battle against the North, and reclaim a lot of territory that had been lost, you know, a good hundred years before that. Uh, And there was a very um, uneasy peace between the two because it wasn't open warfare at this point. It was a lot of raiding and kind of um, harassment, not exactly a full-blown war. Uh, That is up until probably around the events of his death because uh, we do have his mummy, and it has a rather nasty axe wound Uh, right to the front head, uh, front head, like he has a back head, to the front of his head, I should say, and also a rather deep dagger wound right in his cheek. The kings of this period were right up there, leading troops, you know, they were in the thick of these battles, right? They're not like the, the generals that we're used to seeing in uh, periods of, of, you know, the, the Victorian or pre-Victorian. Where
0: they just kind of sit back and said, yes, you, you go go there, kill them. <laughs> yes, you're doing very well, good.
1: Yeah, should good. we should we stand on top of this hill and watch everyone die? Oh, very good, yes. yes. Yeah, there was none of that. Yes.
0: Uh, <laughs> uh, the troops are not doing well, my highness. Yes, well, uh, let's retreat then, shall we? Yes. <laughs> Good. Oh, we're in the back. Oh, perfect. We'll be the first to escape.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is a a very different mindset. This is actually being out there with your foot soldiers. And uh, unfortunately, that sometimes gets you killed, as is very evident. Uh, He did have a son who assumed the the role of Pharaoh uh, right directly, and this was Kamos. But he had a very short reign, only about three years. Uh, He himself is also thought to have been killed in battle. Can't be confirmed, but he didn't have a very long reign. He was a young guy. He was active in fighting. Chances are,
0: yeah. Isn't there an old Egyptian saying that some days the Nile is plentiful, and other days you, you take an axe to the face? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think there's some variation on, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the modern translation. Something's lost in translation, but yeah. Something could, like good. that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now that leaves only one other son to succeed, and this is the young Amos, who was only 10 years old just a child. But we've talked about this before. And I think that your Egyptian knowledge has gotten pretty, um, pretty astute. In the situation where there's a child who's left on the throne, what often happens in terms of the leadership for that country?
0: Well, I, for Egypt I, in this case. I, so if we're talking about the society where it is understood that women can have a is just as equally a significant con- contribution uh, as men, then it would probably be the queens position to act as regent until the kid was old enough.
1: That's exactly right. We've talked about this in previous episodes with Hapshatsut, who's also a member of the same family, by the way, Um, a little bit further down on the spectrum, right? Uh, We talked about this with this very second uh, pharaoh of Egyptian history. His mother ruled in his place until he was old enough. So this is not unheard of. What is highly unique is the fact that this was right in the middle of open warfare. This had stopped being the skirmishes of uh, her husband's reign, and instead Ahotep was now taking command, defending Thebes, which was the capital city that she was ruling from, uh, and quite possibly even leading troops in battle herself. Now, unfortunately, there's not nearly as detailed a record about Ahotep as there are some of the other ladies that we're going to talk about tonight. Hmm. But uh, there are some inscriptions that have survived from her son's reign much later in his reign. Uh, when Amos was much older. And in in one of them, he's um, he's written an inscription that's giving praise to her. Uh, and I, I do want to read a little excerpt from it because I think that it's, it's very telling of the kind of woman that she was. And it reads, she looked after its troops, in this case, is, we're referring to Egypt. She guarded them. She rounded up its fugitives, brought back its deserters. She pacified the South and she repelled those who rebelled against her. Hmm. So that's pretty, pretty strong language to talk about someone who was not just a queen regent, but also somebody who was a, a warrior, somebody who was leading troops. And even if for whatever reason, she didn't ever actually make it into the battlefield, which I don't know, I, I think she may very well have. Uh, just the fact that she was rallying the troops, just the fact that she was probably the lead strategist behind, you know, all of these repelling of attacks and going on the offensive... Uh, shows that she was a true warrior in that sense. What I also find very, very telling is one of her titles that was given to her, and that is called The Carer for Egypt. This is a title that is always given to generals in Egypt. Really? Yes. Uh, She was also found within her funerary items, images of her smiting her enemies, um, images of her pretty much just taking that kind of active role. And also golden flies. So this is a, a pendant, a, a an amulet that is awarded to individuals. And it was once thought to be exclusive to those who were fighting along, you know, in, in military campaigns like generals, people who performed very well in that sense. Now there's still kind of some debate over whether or not that's accurate. Nonetheless, they are given to people of prestige. And in many cases, they are awarded to people who are active in the defense of, of Egypt and its army.
0: So... By those two things alone, it's heavily implied that she wasn't just leading from the throne. She was actively out there in the battlefield.
1: Yeah, whether she was engaging in, in the fighting in the ferry front lines or not, it uh, doesn't matter. She was taking an active role in the defense of this country, and she was setting the stage because Amos would finally finish the job. Uh, there's debate as to when this happened. Some people say it was in the third year of his reign, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense because he would have been 13 if that was the case, then it was definitely Ahotep who expelled them. Other people suggest that it was more like the 15th year of his reign. And by that time, he would have come to adulthood, and it is likely that he could have been leading troops and harassing the, the Hyksos in the north till eventually their expulsion. Uh, one way or another, this is painting the picture for the rest of this dynasty. Uh, or I should say, for the New Kingdom. Because this is where it gets kind of weird. The 17th dynasty technically ends... In the, term, in the way that we record it, uh, with Amos. His successors would be considered the, the founders of the 18th dynasty. And why is that? It, you know, it is actually up to a, an ancient Egyptian scholar who tried to organize all of the different kings into some sort of chronology that made sense. This was years later, nearly a thousand years later. Uh, and they thought because of the significance of the expulsion of the Hyksos and the reunification of Egypt, it was time to start a new dynasty. But there really was no dynastic change in the sense that we really traditionally understand. It. Which
0: is where one family changes
1: exactly. power. Yeah. The 17th and the 18th dynasty are all the same family. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, all these powerful warrior pharaohs of the 18th dynasty, right? So, you know, later Amenhotep I and the I, they would carry on this tradition of going out and conquer or be conquered. They would be the first ones to create an Egyptian empire. And at least through those first few generations, Ahotep was still there. This woman lived to be about 90 years old.
0: Which for ancient times, that's that's unheard of almost.
1: It, it, yeah. I mean, if you were upper class, you had the best chance of living that long. But even still, uh, that's an incredible feat in of itself. And she acted as an advisor to another very famous queen. And this is almost Nefertari. Uh, she was the one to succeed her as queen, and uh, she would also act as a regent for her young son. So you know, it, it's it's fascinating to see these powerful monarchs and, and her influence. M- yeah, more than anything, these matriarchs who who came to the throne and influenced later generations. If I'm Hatshepsut, right? So this would have been my great grandmother. Oh wow, what a what a better role model to give me the kind of confidence to lead an entire country on my own something that had never been done to uh, you know in full uh, full fashion like Hapshatsu did to that point yeah so pretty incredible woman yeah it sounds like it so we've talked a little bit about Egypt i think it's time maybe we talk about you know we've talked about the, the least heard of let's talk about probably the most famous on our list
0: well you know our friends have told us well what is so unique about our podcast is we take the Egyptian and Catholic perspective on things.
1: <laughs> we're doing it again. So we're doing it again.
0: Exactly. Well, let me start with her real name. And then the person I want to talk about is uh, Jean d'Arc. I'm sorry, who? Jean d'Arc. Though you would probably know her as Joan of Arc.
1: Okay. Yeah. That makes sense.
0: Joan of Arc is just the anglicized variation yeah. of her name. Her name was Jean. you know. And she really is a, is a fascinating story because, yes, she was... From the European perspective, you no, know, it was so very rare that you have women warriors at this point in time, especially considering she had no military training whatsoever. But to see that she was able to be successful in a number of military endeavors uh, was, was pretty amazing. Um, but it's also very tragic at the same time, because the more I researched into this, the more we realized that Joan was also a pawn in a, in a very, very deeply political War, and we're referring to the Hundred Years War at this point in time. Yeah. So before I get to her, I really want to kind of set the tone for why her being part of this is significant. You and Sarah had talked about, way back in the Platypus of Languages episode, the Norman influence uh, from England.
1: Oh, sure. Or Huge. on England,
0: I should say. Well, that carries on f- for quite a long time. In fact, it, it was not uncommon until, I would say, in this case, the 15th century, that you've got kings who of England to have properties in France, and they're considered the duke of a property in France. And therein is what is the inciting incident. I mean, there were many instances where this took place, but uh, in this case, we're talking about King Philip VI of France and uh, King Edward III of England. Edward III at that point was also the Duke of Aquitaine in France, and so his duchy had been confiscated. From him, And actually, let's talk about the word Duke for a moment quickly, because Duke is a high noble position that came from France, right? Yeah. Yeah, right? Uh, the word duchy is <laughs> the word for, you know, it sounds quite different uh in French. So more particularly, this happened in 1337. That was one of the circumstances where it was one of many where you had these English and French tensions about France was basically getting uncomfortable with the fact that England had all this land. And yeah. France was like, well, this is our country. So
1: well, one of the greatest rivalries in all the history, really, has existed between yeah. England and France for hundreds of
0: years. Right. So what Edward started to do is started to play a game of, uh, of, he's basically, if he couldn't win by real estate, he could win by playing politics. So what would you say in the late feudal to Middle Ages, in that whole political mindset, what do you think is the most important aspect to you becoming the monarch?
1: Oh, wow. The most important aspect of becoming the monarch?
0: To becoming a monarch and making it legal that you become monarch.
1: Well, there has to be a right of succession, I imagine.
0: Right of succession. Exactly. And that is all predicated upon the legitimacy of your children. Mm. Right? We all know the truth <laughs> be told that all the monarchs had affairs. Oh, sure. They're still doing it. <laughs> right. And, it had, and Exactly. And had plenty of illegitimate children. Yeah. Right? So a monarch, all he had to do was declare a child illegitimate in order for that person to be knocked out of the line of succession. We saw it with Henry VIII. Yeah, whether it's Elizabeth, true or not. Yeah, later on, yeah. So that's the game that Edward plays. Edward tells Philip, well, I don't believe that your claim to the throne is uh, true because ultimately we're talking about people who both have Norman heritage. Edward is just a distant cousin to Philip. So he's claiming that he has right to the French throne.
1: And this is 15th century right now, right?
0: This is fifth, no, This is actually late 14th. This is 1340 that this, oh, okay. this is taking place. So this is the beginning of the 100 years. War. I see, gotcha. Through the next century, we would see a series of English kings and French kings duke it out over, uh, no pun duke intended, it out. <laughs> yeah, uh, over basically who had the right to the, to the French throne. And this is really important because throughout that time, throughout England trying to slowly invade France and take control of it, they also played a very important political hand in that they had troops surrounding the city of Rheims. And Rheims is the...
1: Very well known for its sleep, by the way.
0: Uh, it would look like the word Reims, right. um but I did play with a guy who's a dual citizen and so uh, he corrected a, a, you of <laughs> French he's dual citizen of France and the United States so he said it's uh, O and why is Oem important? well because Oem is the city where all French monarchs are, are coronated and it's uh, it's an essential part of becoming the king of France. It's done in that cathedral by the archbishop. Got it. Of Lem.
1: kind of like Westminster Abbey in England. Ex-
0: no, that's actually the source that that I pulled from. That's what they compared it to. Exactly, it's the same tradition. In mm-hmm. fact, it probably came from the French. Actually, yeah, exactly. Um, so the act of doing, and there was also a point where they're anointed with with the sacred chrism of oil. So it's it's a very deeply Christianized part of it too, right? Because the French believed that they're in a divine right that came. It became more prominent later with Louis the Fourteenth, but. Nevertheless, there's still this sense of there's a reason why this person's here. Well, if the English are blocking O.M., then uh, when, in this case, uh, Charles VI, also known as Charles the Mad, uh, dies, his son, the Dauphin, uh, who is just the crown prince, basically, uh, is unable to be coronated. So now the English kind of have the upper hand at this point. They have a monarch who can't assume the monarchy. They've got their troops kind of, you know, going through the country, and they're slowly kind of taking a stranglehold of the country, and it's looking like this English king is going to become the king of two different countries. Things okay. are not looking good for the French people.
1: No. so That's some pretty incredible maneuvering, though, I'll have to say.
0: Yeah. So what ends up happening is provincially, a prophecy starts to being spread, that there is a young virgin who will come and save France from the English, and... We don't know. I don't know too much about where the prophecy comes from, but we just know that it starts to spread. And in 1412, we have Joan being born to uh, peasant farmers, uh, Jacques d'Arc, to be more specific, in the small village of uh, Domremy in France. And she was the youngest of five children. Hmm. So um, her, she lived a fairly normal life. Her parents were both very devout Catholic. Which is not surprising at this point in time. We're living in a time where this is God intoxicated. It was very rare to find someone who didn't believe in God. <laughs> yeah. So she's very, very devoted. Go to, went to confession almost daily, I think. That's and a lot. That,
1: yeah, that's yeah. very devoted.
0: So um. Does she
1: have something to confess every single day? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. How do you, how do you, I mean, do you have to purposely go out and do something wrong just so you have something to stick to your schedule? Well,
0: in Catholicism, you don't, don't just have sins of actions. You also have sins of conscience, right? And those are not formal terms. But when we, act, when we say the penitential act, then we say, in what I have done and what I have failed to do, in my thoughts and in my actions. They actually, it's the other way around, but nevertheless.
1: So whether I ate that Twinkie or not, the fact that I thought about it?
0: Was, it was just as bad as doing it. Uh, so
1: I'd have to go to confession for like 3,000 years. Yeah,
0: everything in her being was all about proper, li- proper living, proper thinking. Which also kind of kind of alarmed her, because between the ages of 12 and 13 and a half, depending on the scholar, is when, as she calls him, the voices... Up here, mm. And to a 13-year-old girl, this is a pretty terrifying thing, if you think about it. You've got these voices talking to you, to whom she later attributed to being uh, the Archangel St. Michael, uh, as well as St. Margaret. Because of that, I mean, she was very wary of telling people this. Because, <laughs> what? Well, what are you going to do if you tell your parents, hey, I heard voices today? It's the same reaction we'd have today. Yeah. It's that you would think, okay, this person is mentally Unbalanced. Unbalanced, exactly. The same is true then. They would have thought she was mad, right? She was She was fully aware of that, so she hid that these voices were coming to her. That To me, that speaks to me. That actually casts a very important seed of doubt in my mind, because a lot of mo- modern people would acknowledge that some people think that she was showing signs of schizophrenia, and therefore that doesn't mean that you know, she was being talked to by God or by anybody sort of form of divine intervention. And I'm not saying that's true either, because that that's an act of faith. You have to kind of take a leap of faith to to assume that that is is true. But it does cast out in my mind that she was schizophrenic because people today who deal with schizophrenia are aware of their condition because they've been diagnosed and they've been yeah. treated for it.
1: Well, I mean, okay, I, when i when I hear some of the um quote unquote symptoms if you if if you will, yes, it's really easy for us to go and and start labeling it as schizophrenia. Other people have labeled it as being epilepsy or tuberculosis, or, you know, the side effect of migraines. So it's really easy for us after the fact to do that. And I've fallen into that trap. In fact, even before we started recording, we were kind of having this conversation. And the more I've been reflecting on, the more I've been thinking about it, there's just not enough information to say one way or or the other. We just don't know enough about her.
0: Yeah, exactly. And even examinations by non-Catholic scholars have stated that, you know, it's very hard to say whether she was a mentally unbalanced girl or not.
1: And let's also acknowledge the fact that she was probably, uh, without doubt, actually, highly intelligent. People who are that intelligent, they know how to manipulate. Yeah. As intelligent
0: as an uneducated person could be at this point in time.
1: You don't have to have that kind of uh, quote-unquote book smarts to be highly intelligent, to be capable of learning, and to be a a brilliant strategist. Uh, you, you You can do all of these things without ever learning how to read or write. I wouldn't be surprised if she knew exactly how to manipulate those around her, tell them exactly what they wanted to hear. So maybe these visions, perhaps with the best of intentions, could very well have just been constructs of her own imagination for the intent of spreading her word and and gaining followers. Let's, Let's go with that for a second, because that's how she was able
0: to actually get to where she was. She was able to explain things that there was no way she could have possibly have known. Even if she was good at manipulating people, there are a couple of occurrences that come to mind that make you go, huh.
1: All right, lame on me. I'm a bit dubious.
0: So at first, so, I mean, she's being told by these voices that God has sent her to free the French from the English. So she goes and she requests to meet the Dauphin, and of course she's denied because she's a peasant. (laughs) No one's going to just that easily get an audience with uh, the monarch. Or the, the supposed monarch. Um, but what's more interesting is she, so she keeps trying, and she goes to this town, and she catches the attention of a gentleman named uh, Robert uh, Baldricourt, who is the, a regional ruler for Charles. He's not quite a—let's I I, I, assume he's a governor, but they okay. didn't mention his title.
1: Something equivalent to that.
0: So what got her noticed is that she was able to tell him that they had just lost a key battle before the messenger had even gotten into the town to tell them about it she was able to, to tell them the outcome, that they had just lost a very important battle. And that got her noticed. It was just like, how could she have known that? Sure, she could have sat on a hilltop and maybe have seen horses coming. I, who, who knows? But the fact that she was able to do that well before there was any kind of interception of that that could have taken place started to turn some heads.
1: Maybe she was psychic.
0: Possibly. Hey, you know, if we're talking about being open to the paranormal, sure, right? Mark's uh, equation, right? Exactly. And... Because of that, no, she finally does eventually gain an audience with Charles. Here is what convinced Charles to kind of go along with it. He was never fully convinced. He was never, like, completely bought into to Joan being the quote-unquote virgin of the prophecy. So, first of all, there was two things that took place. Uh, when Charles decided to actually arrange the audience, he wanted to put her to the test. So, to do that, he hid amongst the other nobles. And he put a decoy on the throne into the audience room. And the person told her to to bow before the Dauphin. And she said, no, because that's not the Dauphin. And she was able to pick him out without ever having met him before. Now, keep in mind, for a peasant person, at this point in time, you would be lucky if you ever even saw the monarch in your lifetime. So there is that piece to it as well.
1: Okay, but when I hear that, I can't help but think, and play the devil's advocate, no, no pun intended in that case either, that either somebody who has a vested interest in her who realizes the potential for her uh, and realizes this could be the person that they want to use as a pawn, as you've already stated, that she's already going to be manipulated in her future. Who's to say that manipulation didn't start now? Who's to say she wasn't being fed the information she needed to appear exactly as they wanted her to be?
0: Well, there's there's one other piece to it. The pawn, I, I don't think she was being used until later on, and I think she was being used more by the English than she was by the French, later on. Uh, by this point in time, she was just a girl, you know, who like, well, I, we'll see what's going on. The thing that really kind of struck Charles was that she said, I know what you're worried about. You're worried because your father disowned you. And it's true, Charles the Mad had claimed that Charles, this who would be Charles VII, was illegitimate. Okay. okay? But that was not public knowledge. She said, I know you're worried. You're worried that you're, that you're legitimate or not. Whether you're legitimate. And the truth is, no, he is here. You are the legitimate heir to the throne.
1: But you would say it is public knowledge that Charles was nuts. I mean, if he's known as Charles the Mad, it, it must be widespread and known. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility that she just kind of put two and two together. Yeah. She figured that was probably what's going on. I wouldn't even be surprised if she was so observant that she was able to pick out who in that room was staring at the Dauphin, who could lead her... To who that person was.
0: Well, we can speculate all you want, but like we said, we ultimately will never know. Yeah, that's true. For sure. Yeah. So let's focus more on what happened. Okay. Because of that, she got the the go-ahead, basically, to go and uh, begin her, her military campaign. And the first major military battle that she was in, it was also a success, was the Battle of Orleans, which is how she earned the name the Maid of Orleans. And uh, that happened in the late 1420s. Pretty amazing because in that battle she was seriously injured. She was she was shot in the heart with a or Sorry uh, in the breast with with an arrow So you know a pretty serious wound and she recovered from it She pressed on and what was really cool is through a series of these battles She actually diverted the troops away from them and because of that the path is clear So she said now's your chance So with that the king and the archbishop were able to even though they were like dragging their feet with that opportunity in place got into them and he was able to finally be coronated as king I forgot to mention one other key element here that I have to bring into account the reason why they were able to gain such headway in France is because the Duke of Burgundy was allied with the English not with Charles so they had somebody on the inside who was yeah. working with them so you have uh, Burgundian troops who were aiding in this basically and pretty much it's the Duke of Burgundy versus, versus Charles in France so now that that was a pretty big blow to the Duke of Burgundy now that that he's been elevated to the throne finally this power of symbolism right the, having the crown actually on his head and actually having the throne occupied is a is a big deal in this point in time so before we move forward though I think we've got another
1: here comes again all right who's it gonna be this time
0: that's unusual. It's closing. Uh. And, and it's gone.
1: What do we do now? Oops. I don't know.
0: I didn't prepare for this.
1: I, I know. I don't. We, okay. Uh, we could. Um, well, we could talk about Audible. Audible.com. Oh you know? right,
0: of course. No right, because you know if you like listening to podcasts, I'm sure you like listening to audiobooks. Sure. So we could certainly talk about how we've got a uh, a free trial now. Uh, You can go to audibletrial.com slash nerdonomy, and you can go and sign up for that, and we'll get a nice little commission off of that. Or, if you go to nerdonomy.com, you can click on that Audible link on the right side of our our homepage.
1: That's right. I guess people could just do that. Let's just move on. All right. So, Joan of Arc.
0: Yes, indeed. Continuing with Joan. Uh, This is where it becomes more of a pawn. Now that Charles is on the throne, he cares less about what Joan has to offer, because he figures, well, I'm in charge now, so what's there left to do? Joan still very felt like there was still more work to be done because the English were still in France. And uh, there's some conjecture about whether she stayed in the army of her own will. Some th- people think that she stayed against her will. Hmm. Um, because
1: she was so popular, because she was such this uh, figurehead?
0: Yeah. I mean, the other thing we didn't talk about either, and I'm, I'm shocked I didn't talk about it, is her most notable feature was that she dressed like a man. Yeah. And I forgot to mention that that was because of protection as well. She was escorted to the Dauphin by three men-at-arms before this had all happened, and she was staying in camp with soldiers. These are men who, at this point in time, were known to take liberties with young women, especially women who sure. were not only virgins, but insisted on remaining virgins. Yeah. And that was one of a, one of Joan's key attributes, is she wanted to ma- maintain a life of purity.
1: Well, let's not also forget the fact that when you have, you know, pretty much 100% your, your ranks are men, to dress as a man has a very commanding presence. Absolutely. Let's bring it back to Egypt for a second with Hapshatsu. She wore male regalia. She wore the traditional regalia of of a male king to validify the fact that, yes, she was ruler.
0: Yes. Well, unfortunately, the English used this against her as well, uh, as would come on later, because uh, during uh, one of the battles in 1429, she was captured by Burgundian soldiers and then uh, sold to John of Luxembourg, where she was then sold to the English. Uh, the English basically wanted to put her on trial for heresy because she was claiming she, that she could talk to God. And so the the Catholic Church...
1: Uh, well, that and she kind of screwed up their plans.
0: Yeah, exactly. So the Catholic Church, uh, of course, this archbishop who was under English you know, command, or in you no know, corroborating with the English, uh, put her on trial for heresy, but they couldn't legitimately try her for it because there was no firm evidence that she was a heretic. So they uh, eventually... They just kind of left her in prison, and uh, as the story goes, uh, one morning when the guard goes to check on her, she had been, uh, she had been, at this point when she was in prison, she had been given back women's clothing. Well, by the time they got to her uh, the, that day, she was in men's clothing hmm. again, and everyone claimed, "But how could this have been possible? How could, witchcraft, that's how, witchcraft. So they now spun it as if she was a relapsed heretic, and burned her at the stake on uh, may of 1431
1: or they took the clothes they gave her away
0: exactly and
1: gave her men's clothing and not wanting to be naked wore them exactly and then was as you say burned at the
0: state. Yes. now to, to be totally fair they did give her all of her last rights in the sense that she was able to receive communion and she was able to have confession one last time before she was executed
1: oh how nice
0: yes but if you really want to mess with them, you know, you deny, deny her those, too. But they didn't do that. I think it's important to make, though, that she appealed to the Pope about this trial. And the Pope never got the message. Mm. So in 1455, um, the Pope made an appeal trial. This is obviously a different Pope later on. And basically found out that the entire trial in the first place should never have even happened because they had no authority to do so. Because uh, when you're trying somebody who's a heretic, that has to get approval from from the top. So uh, basically, the Pope annulled the ruling posthumously, and uh, in 1909, Joan was beatified by Pope Pius X.
1: I think we talked about this on yes. our Saints episode.
0: We did, yeah. And well, just to reiterate, yeah. I mean, she was technically a martyr at that point because she had died protecting what she sticking to her guns, you know. Yeah. And aside from the fact that there had been lots of investigations into the stories about her her visions and these things that to the devout Catholic would be divinely uh, intervened upon. So in 1920, Benedict the Fifteenth canonized her. Uh, and so now in the Catholic Church, she is St. Joan of Arc. Well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, another little fun fact, too. In uh, As a thank you for Charles becoming king, uh, he nobilized her, her family. Uh, and they took on the name Dulie, which is uh, of the lilies. So they actually have a, they actually became nobles. They had a whole lilies in their crest of arms as well. Well, that's nice. So she died noble, I guess.
1: At least her family, you know, got some sort of recompense for it.
0: Yeah. Um, pretty amazing that she, she was able to inspire and get her way up to this level of leadership. And also very sad at the same time.
1: Well, it is a bit of a sad story. And it's, uh, it's sad to see her fate uh, end the way it did at the hands of the English. But let's talk a little bit about England. Shall we? Sure. But let's talk about England, oh, I don't know, maybe about fourteen hundred years before that.
0: So we're talking about first century England.
1: First century England. So
0: we're talking more like Roman Saxon like England. That's right. Arthurian England
1: almost to a way. The the kingdom of the ancient Britons. Okay. And uh when you when you think of that time period and you think of a powerful woman, what comes to mind?
0: Well, Guinevere, but that's not right. Guine- <laughs> Guinevere is more Norman-influenced anyway, so forget right. that. I'm talking about an actual historical figure. I don't have the foggiest, I'm sorry. You don't have
1: the foggiest. Our British listeners are screaming it uh, into their stereos or their iPods or whatever they're listening on right now. And uh, there's a couple different ways of pronouncing it. I'll say in the traditional kind of British way first, and that is bodicea. Have you heard of bodicea? I've heard of bodicea, yeah. That's who I'm talking about. From the, this point forward, though, I don't want to call her Bodicia because that is uh, very likely a uh, mistranslation of her name that was made very popular in the in the Middle Ages uh, when she kind of regained popularity. Uh, so I will instead refer to her as Boudica because that is probably closer to her actual pronunciation of her name. Uh, the Welsh would say it a little bit differently. And I don't think I could get the pronunciation quite right, but it's something along the lines of Budbug, but Budica I think is close enough.
0: To be totally fair, both Cornish and Welsh dialects are extremely hard to learn how to do.
1: Oh yeah, and I'm not even going to try.
0: So yeah, don't don't.
1: No 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 no. Don't beat yourself up too much. We're not going. No 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 no. You know what we just did? We made a Vicar of Dibley reference. We did. You know why I love that? Because the the vicar her her real first name you know what it is is Bodicea. Bodicea, yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh that's so, beautiful little spoiler for those who haven't watched the show but uh, it's worth it go watch it it's really funny uh, anyhow this is a, a really oh gosh one of the most interesting periods of English history that I can. I can imagine, because... Well,
0: it, it precedes English monarchial history, because according to the English monarchs, that starts with William the Conqueror, but, but that right. didn't happen until the first millennium.
1: Right, so we're talking the way later. yeah And you're quite right that Rome has a huge influence in all of this right now, because the Roman Empire, uh, this at this point, under the leadership of... Claudius, to begin the story with, okay, is expanding further and further. And Claudius is one of those great emperors where he was never expected to become anything and ends up really becoming one of the hallmarks and pillars of first century Rome. Which
0: we had talked about in our Roman episodes. Yeah, we did. Oh, I can't remember what the, which ones they were called, though.
1: Uh, that was the Etu Goofy. Etu Goofy, that's yeah, right. Etu, Etu Goofy, uh, part one and part two. Yes. Uh, that a great title. Etu Goofy! <laughs> Claudius, who, of course, follows up after the horribly disastrous reign of Caligula, uh, does what Caligula couldn't, and that is invades and actually takes over England. And uh, it would set the tone for hundreds of years to come, and it seemed as if Roman rule was there to stay around permanently. But there was one period for a single year where that was very seriously questioned, and that was during the reign of his successor, nero okay earlier in nero's reign not towards the very disastrous end uh it's
0: before nero went bat
1: yeah pretty much yeah <laughs> uh this is 60 ce okay so 17 years earlier rome invaded took over essentially left four roman legions to keep all of the anglo-saxon tribes uh under check uh, they were led by the by the governor general and this was spontonius paulinus uh, which sounds kind of like a sportscaster, but uh, instead a rather nasty Roman general. We don't know a whole lot about him. There's no images that survive of him. Uh, we believe he was probably somewhere middle-aged, so most likely in his late 40s, early 50s. Uh, probably very typical of a Roman with, you know, of that, of that time period with short hair and what have you. Very, you know, typical Roman appearance, I would imagine. So we're trying to put a face to this guy. Uh, and he ruled with a pretty iron fist, uh, he saw one of the most, um, how do I want to say, probably, probably the biggest problem on the island. And that was the the spiritual center of the, of the ancient Britons, the Druids. He realized that if he was going to completely break the people of Britain and ensure that Rome was going to rule over them without any kind of resistance, he was going to have to destroy that... Religious aspect of their culture, which was pretty much the only thing that bound all of these different tribes together, because they all had their own kingdoms that they ruled over and they warred among one another. But the one thing that they all had in common was the was a shared religion. So to do this, he, he travels to uh, the Isle of Anglesey, which is where the the druids of that time, you know, had sacred groves that they they lived in and, and conducted many different religious ceremonies, and you know, like I said, unified the country. And he slaughters them. Hmm. Uh, it's absolute, heinous, devastating slaughter. Pretty much nobody is left alive. Wow! And in doing so, it has this incredible effect on the rest of the island. Uh, word spreads very, very quickly, and uh, this is this is a very, very aggressive action that would be met uh, in kind. Uh, not entirely due to this, there were a few other kind of circumstances that surround this, uh, this big uprising. And that's kind of where Boudicca comes in. Uh, Boudicca was a, was a queen in her own right uh, in what is now uh, the eastern portion of, of England, uh, in uh, what is now Wales, was, was her, her kingdom. And uh, she ruled there with her husband, very popular. But she ruled, believe it or not, as a Roman collaborator. Huh. Her husband had struck a deal with Paulinus to more or less uh, maintain autonomy over their region, over their their kingdom, uh, and uh, this was something that was a bit of a a delicate agreement. Uh, nothing was. Super formalized. This was pretty much at the discretion of Paul Linus. And he could change his mind at, at any moment. And I think there were no um, no allusions to that. I think that was pretty much understood. So
0: they were basically puppet rulers?
1: More or less, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what is kind of sad, though, is that as her husband starts to near the end of his life, as he becomes you know increasingly more ill, he decides that uh, he's going to, write into his will... Let's give half the kingdom to my family under the leadership of my wife, Boudicca, and the other half can go to the Romans, just to kind of appease them, hoping that if he dies, the Romans won't just kind of sweep in and take over everything. Mm. If he gives them at least half, maybe they'll be happy with it and leave his family alone.
0: Uh, splitting the kingdom, never a good idea.
1: Never a good idea. And this is all going on right when Paulinus decides to take that more aggressive approach, towards destroying the culture of the ancient Britons.
0: Yeah, he's trying to basically wipe them out culturally, yeah.
1: So what do you think is going to happen?
0: The s*** is going to hit the fan.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. That's our second bleep this episode. Uh, That's exactly what happened. And one of his legions, under orders, comes into Boudicca's kingdom and starts raping and murdering and pillaging and doing exactly what you kind of expect them to do when they're trying to pacify a group of people they're going to sure. conquer. But they take it to the next level. This is where they make their biggest mistake. And it's quite horrendous to, to hear this, but uh, Boudica who's just recently been widowed, is uh, taken from her capital into the center of town, tied to a post, publicly humiliated by being whipped. And then her young daughters, 10 and 12 years old, are... In front of her and all of her followers raped by Roman soldiers.
0: Wow. That's horrific.
1: Let's let's make something clear here. To a Roman soldier, the act of rape against a child who was not Roman was never thought of as anything other than an order given. It was a it was a tactic that was used countless times before. And it's quite heinous to think about it in our in our modern society today. But it was even more so you know, to the ancient Britons, because they were a very proud people. And to have something like this not only happen to anyone, but to happen to their leader and happen right in front of her face uh, was the ultimate insult. And not just to Boudicca, but to her, her, her people. Yeah. And to the entire island. And you said these kids,
0: these children were how old? 10 and 12 years old. So that's not even... I mean, even in an age where, yes, people started to marry and... Procreate young. This is still before that would even take place. This is, yeah. it is unspeakable. Yeah, yeah,
1: unspeakable. Is exactly is, is what it is. And you know these atrocities that were committed to her and her young children. Boudica demanded revenge, and she uh she reached out to a neighboring tribe, uh, explained the situation, explained that she could lead them in a rise up in a revolt against the Romans and expel them from this island. And they followed her. They voted her into control. They gave up whole control of their own territory and said, yes, you will lead us.
0: I'm sure, well, I mean, if you think about it, I think anybody who'd hear the story of what they had done, I mean, that's a pretty compelling argument. Look, they did this to me. What are they going to do to you? Exactly. You know?
1: This is just the beginning. Yeah. And word was just starting to arrive of the atrocities that were being committed against the Druids. Oh, wow. You know? Not that much further away, only a few hundred miles or a hundred miles or something to that effect away. So on the other, other side on the west so side.
0: At this point, the Romans are just these barbaric invaders who yeah. are ready to, to Paul, do whatever they want to gain power.
1: Paul Linus was a fool because uh, Boudica very, very quickly was able to assemble a force of 100,000. That's in awesome. In a very short amount of time.
0: Well, sure, she... <laughs> As the Bible says, or quote says, I believe, uh, or is it? And it's not the Bible. Maybe it's Shakespeare. It's probably Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's The Bible for the actor. Yeah. Uh, Hell hath no fear like a woman scorned. Yeah. You know.
1: And they would they or, would feel it in kind. Or is it Electra? It's, yeah, it's, it's one. It's one of the classics. Brian. It doesn't matter. What matters is she would have her revenge. The very first wave of this attack. Because from the moment she gains an army, she, she goes on the offensive, and she never stops. Uh, it would be at uh, Camula Dunum, which was the capital city established by the Romans in southern England, uh, in what is now Colchester, Essex. And this was a city that was relatively undefended. It was made up of the upper class of Roman society in England at that time, which consisted mostly of veteran soldiers and their families. And there they were building a, a temple, a temple of Claudius, in honor, of course, of the emperor who you know, succeeded in, in taking the island. Uh, and they were completely unaware of the events that were transpiring around the country uh, and totally unprepared for what would come. Because 100,000 of these uh, followers would descend upon the city and burn it to the ground, killing everyone, murdering wow. men, women, and children. They, wow, yeah. it was it was, you know one heinous act ended up you know getting another. And uh, it was pretty extreme. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the folks in in the in the city who were of the upper class of the highest echelons, you know, had a plan, right? for things like this. So they escaped to the temple and locked themselves in there for two days. Uh, eventually, they they weren't able to keep the the followers of Boudicca out so they they kicked down the the doors to the temple and set it to fire and burned everyone alive. Wow. Yeah, it essentially became a giant oven and killed all these men, women, and children. It was pretty awful, but it wasn't the wasn't the end, because uh, as word of this came... <laughs> I'm sorry, this story gets worse? <laughs> it, there's a lot more. Um, as this... As, Where do you go from here? <laughs> I, well, there's more. I got more to tell you. It's pretty awful. Uh as the uh, the word of, you know, their capital being sacked, you know, started to spread around. the The ninth legion that was stationed there, uh, came south to try to lend support, and uh, they were ended up being cut off by the other half of Boudicca's forces, who caught them completely unaware, out of the forests and slaughtered almost the entire legion. Only okay. yeah, only the legion's commander and a few of the cavalry actually survived. So one of those four legions, gone. Capital city, gone. Boudicca now turned her sights north. Uh, and she turned them north to Londinium, what is now modern-day London. Makes sense. Londinium was a very interesting city. It was the center of commerce for this new, uh, this new Roman territory. And it was very, very large. It was expanding very, very quickly. And anytime you have a situation like that, it's very difficult to defend it properly. So there are no no walls, no watchtowers. Um, there was a city guard, almost certainly, to keep you know local order, but nothing to repel a force of a hundred thousand. And Boudica had a huge advantage because whereas the Romans used the chariot for sport and leisure, the ancient uh, Britons used it for warfare.
0: Which is also true of the ancient Celts uh, exactly. as well. Yeah.
1: There are estimates of thousands of these chariots uh, in, in use at that time, which is why they were so effective against the, the Romans in those initial few months of this hmm. campaign. And uh, they did exactly to Londinium as they had done to the capital. Sacked, burned, civilians murdered. Wow. Pretty much the entire population was wiped out.
0: And this was Boudica's forces doing that? Yeah. Okay, so at this point I'm like, yay, or at this point I'm just like, they're committing atrocities in revenge, but they're still committing atrocities.
1: Yeah, there's certainly blame to go on both sides here, but uh, this was this was the nature of the game in, in England at that time. You know, there really was uh, no way around this. It was they, a they boiling much,
0: point. It was kill or be killed at this yeah, point.
1: Precisely, and I'm not condoning, of course, the the you know murder and pillage of these.
0: When you're fighting for survival, yeah. we understand.
1: You know. Yeah. So you know, it, it's 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 difficult for us to see from our from our eyes in the modern world today, but this is the situation that was presented in front of them. Paulinus had, before Boudica's forces gotten to London, uh, rallied about fifteen thousand Roman soldiers and gotten there first. Looked at the situation, and said, "Forget it, you guys are on your own," and fled to the north. So they had an opportunity to make a stand. They had an opportunity to try to protect... They were outnumbered
0: by almost 10 to 1.
1: That's true, but they're about to be outnumbered even more. Because one-third of uh, his forces, when fleeing north, deserted the army. Oh. Yep. Uh, Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So here he is now, greatly depleted... Uh, of soldiers and weapons and everything he needs to defend himself. And Boudicca's forces have now uh, raised to the number of 230,000. Oh, Jesus. And right along with them, as they were marching north to battle, are all of their families, all the children, all of the elderly, all being taken along in a caravan of wagons with supplies and to be there to watch as her army continues to be victorious. They were spectators, essentially. Wow. And that would be one of their final undoings. Really?
0: Because
1: this is a very interesting story, the way it turns on us. Because here we see this Boudicca, this woman of revenge, who has this unstoppable nature about her, who is decimating everything that is in her path. But eventually she's held up by this very small group of Roman soldiers. Uh, And there's a couple of things that contributed to her final defeat. One of them was geography. The actual location of her final battle, we don't really know. There's tons and tons of debate. What We do know from the scholars who, who left this uh, story to us, uh, the two surviving Roman accounts of this, uh, tell us that it was in a valley and there was a heavily wooded area that Boudica was forced to move around and right into the hands of the Roman soldiers. We also know that Roman soldiers who had been on campaign for 17 years, were highly skilled. They were the most efficient war machine in the world at that time. And they had weapons like the javelin, which was extremely powerful, could be thrown a good distance, maybe a good 15, 20 meters, uh, impale completely through a human body, or at the very least make a shield completely useless. And each of these soldiers had two of these javelins to their, to their name. Uh, they also had the scorpion, which was a really robust uh, uh, crossbow, essentially. An enormous iron bolt uh, that could be fired that could very well pass through not just one of your enemies, but maybe two or three before it finally stopped in the chest of someone that was going to be wow. killed. So they were well armed. What they didn't have was the same numbers. But because they had that geographic advantage to them, when Boudica finally caught up, You know, she's got 230,000 soldiers, but they're all undisciplined, right? You know, they've got a wide variety of different weapons. Their cavalry's all over the place. There's no real organization behind their charge. They're just going full in. Uh, And it could very well have still worked against such a small force of Romans if it wasn't for a tactic that they used, uh, where they actually created a kind of saw effect, if you will. So listeners, I want you to imagine for a moment that you have a, a line of Romans in front of you. Okay, let's say it's about 10,000 strong. And uh, you know, let's say every 40 feet or so, uh, one soldier walks out in front and the others kind of follow behind creating an arrow point. It creates kind of like a series of teeth, like you would find on a saw. And this tactic had been used time and time again to repel you know, superior numbers. Because as you have this huge force following into these teeth, uh, what do you think kind of happens? Well, they're getting caught it in the
0: middle so they could get slaughtered by some other you know, secret attack that you don't see from the front.
1: There's that, and I think you had it right in the very beginning in that they're all being forced into these kind of little valleys, if you will, these little crevices where you have Roman soldiers on either side of you stabbing away from behind shields because they're all protected with these enormous shields. Right. And they have their swords that they're using to stab at you. Anyone who's, you know, falls to the ground, because they're continually moving forward, they just trample on yeah. top
0: of. Well, that was their that was their secret, right? Keep moving forward no matter what. Exactly. Pretty much.
1: And here comes this towering force of 230 Britons, and they slam right into this. Of course, after having javelins and bolts thrown through that initial wave, uh, and 80,000 of them, Britons, that is, were killed. The cavalry had been kept back. And as soon as they started to retreat, when they saw the tactic wasn't working, the cavalry swept in and started wiping down their ranks even further. And that that group of people, that caravan that they brought along with them to watch those spectators... Ran away. No, they couldn't move fast enough because they couldn't see with all the confusion of the battle exactly what was going on. They were not set up to start you know, leaving immediately. So they ended up cutting off their only avenue of retreat. Oh, wow. And so you know, Boudicca's forces were scattered. Like I said, 80,000 of those 230,000 soldiers died and pretty much all of their family and supplies were thought to have been wiped out. Wow. All the elderly, all the children, all the people who came, all the babies, all the people who came to, to spectate and watch, uh, were cut down by the Romans and Boudicca was forced to flee and committed suicide. As legend tells us, we don't know exactly the circumstances surrounding her death, but suicide seems like a far, uh, very likely, I should say. Um, and she still had ten
0: times the amount of soldiers at the end of the battle. Yeah, that's crazy. Because
1: they were so disorganized, and you know that that terror that comes into seeing your whole family be slaughtered, uh, kind of demoralizes you. I think. Wow. And this would set up the next four hundred years of Roman occupation and rule of the island. And you know, it, it seems like a very sad story today. And of course, you know, uh, many modern you know inhabitants of England see is actually a pretty um, uh, pretty impressive person. They, they admire her. Uh, she's a symbol of those roots that they have that are, that are very Celtic, that are very ancient. But let's also forget how much of what our modern society is because of the Romans and because of modern England. You know, it's roads that exist today. Uh, many of the words within its language. Sure. Uh, it's government. All of these things are holdovers from that period of Roman rule. Uh, but it still doesn't make what the Romans did to the uh, ancient Britons any nicer.
0: No, not at all. Let's end on a, on a happier note, shall we? Yeah,
1: I, I think Boudica's lesson is pretty impressive. She was still yeah. an incredibly powerful woman who who was a, a, an amazing um, rallier of troops. Yeah. If only she had that final strategy in the end.
0: Well, the, the end of our evening must go with a person who has very little tragedy in her life.
1: And the very person who was suggested by our, our listener.
0: Exactly. And arguably the most successful pirate in history, and you've never even heard her name, uh, which is Zheng Shi. Zheng Shi. Zheng Shi. Um, born in 1775. And we actually were not quite sure what her name was, because Zheng Shi is the name that just be- means Widow Zheng, hmm. because, and I'll explain why that name comes in handy later. Um, but basically, all we do know is that she was working as a prostitute somewhere in china uh and uh you know, a bunch of pirates came in one night, like they do <laughs> <laughs> you know uh where are we going with to, the story Brian? to <laughs> to, no, to you know blow off some steam, and a pirate captain by the name of Zhang Yi comes in and uh proposes to marry her and and they get they get married in eighteen oh one, but here's what's interesting. She was a very clever woman from the beginning. She said, well, okay, you want to marry me? That's fine. We have to split half the plunder.
1: You're telling me she had a pirate prenup?
0: She had a pirate prenup, basically. That's awesome. And if we're talking about the power that women women can exude in this scenario, it's her sexuality. Look, she clearly is desired by this pirate captain. It's either he gives her half the money or the treasure or he's not getting any. So it's a pretty simple equation at that point.
1: Men are very simple. It's we are true. Very, very easy to manipulate.
0: Very true. And so because of that, they became a co-captaining force. Uh, by this point in time, Zheng Yi had already a- accumulated a fleet of pirate ships—not just one pirate ship. He was basically a pirate admiral at mm. this point in time. He had m- maybe uh, some people say f- as few as four hundred ships. As few? Yeah, as many as
1: 1,200.
0: Wow. Yeah, exactly. They were called the Red Flag Fleet.
1: Holy crap. I mean, you think about the, the pirates of the of the Caribbean, right? Our, right. Our more typical version sure, of a pirate. Sure, sure, sure. There is no way any of them could have ever organized, assembled, and maintained a fleet of that size. These
0: guys pretty much ruled the South Ch- China Seas. Uh, I did forget to mention that the names that we think Zheng Shi had before marrying uh, Zheng Yi is, uh, Shi Xi Yu or Shi Yang. Hmm. doesn't matter because when she became, uh, Zhang Yi's wife, she became Zhang Yi, uh, Zhang Yi Cao, which just means wife of Zhang Yi. So by 1804, this is only three years after they had married, uh, they had adopted the son of a fisherman named, uh, Chang Bao. Uh, and <laughs> interestingly enough, it's speculated that as he got older, that both parties had affairs with him. Um, so, well, he was, he was basically a son, quote-unquote. Ooh. Yeah, he was basically a, a first mate and an heir to the, the fortune, or to the organization, I should say. They had also, in this, run this time, the, the uh, Zhangs had formed a blockade against a Portuguese trading post in Macaw, which is pretty amazing. Now, the Portuguese are no strangers to dealing with piracy, obviously, uh, having done dealing with it th- in their colonies on the New World as well. Well, the Portuguese Navy tried sending an armada in to get through the blockade, and they were pretty easily blown apart. And the British didn't even want to deal with them. The Brit—this is at this point in time, Britain has the most powerful naval fleet in the world, and they don't—they want nothing to do with these people. They're basically okay. Let's just give them an escort vessel to get make sure our ships don't get lost, but do not engage these people. They're—they're too dangerous. Yeah. Just because their numbers are so, so far outranking, or outnumbering them. The only tragedy I should say about Shi uh, is that in 1807, her husband is swept away in a storm uh, from one of the ships. We're not sure if it was a storm or if it was a typhoon. And now the only risk against her is now you have a woman who is in charge of up to 80,000 pirates.
1: That's incredible. Right?
0: <laughs> so who's going to make a move against, to, to take her out? Well... That's where Chang Bao comes in handy, because she names him the official captain of the fleet, or the admiral, or whatever you want, but the official leader. So he's basically the ones leading him into battle and doing all the, the, the field work. She's the one doing all the business organizing and moving around. And she, she had to establish a strict code of conduct that there was no room for error on. And she gave it, she made it pretty fair. If your ship captures the treasure, you get to keep 20%. Everything else goes into the general plunder. So that kept them happy, right? Because they got sure. a little bit of payoff right away. Uh, but otherwise, would you like to hear some of the other rules that she had to had to Im- impose as oh, well? Oh,
1: I'm on uh, the edge of my seat.
0: So first of all, um, if you stole from the plunder, you got beheaded.
1: Okay, yeah, beheaded, yep.
0: If you abandoned your post, you had your ears cut off.
1: Okay, sounds about right, yep.
0: Right? Uh, if you disobeyed orders, you were beheaded.
1: Oh, another beheading. Okay, good. Yep.
0: Yes. What I love about this is how she treated female prisoners. Because mm. this is where, like, kind of like the the inner feminist in many people just goes, yes. So, female prisoners, if they were ugly, they were allowed to go free, <laughs> <laughs> free of charge. They were put on shore right, right away. No harm came to them. If they were attractive. They were auctioned off to the the male pirates of the ship, or just outright bought. And under her own pirate laws, that uh, made them uh, legally married in in her eyes. However, if a pirate man was caught cheating, mistreating, or had raped his wife, he was immediately beheaded. Wow. Yeah. So it basically says you have to treat these women with respect, and you have to you have to take care of them. So
1: maybe we should have some of those law is still around.
0: <laughs> uh, I think there are in some parts of the world. <laughs> yeah. So um, by the time that she had amassed this much power, I mean, she she actually had grown the fleet. She got up to 1,500 vessels, which is you no know, only 300 more than, than what she had started with. But nevertheless, 1,500 vessels. And this is the 19th century, mind you. They pretty much ruled Southeast Asia, if you think about it, when it comes to <laughs> all of their, their naval might. It was to the point where the Chinese government, in this case more or less the Qing Dynasty, they didn't know what to do. They were at a loss. Like they were so powerful, to deal with, like they could, they had basically two choices: pursue a seemingly endless war with this naval fleet, which would drain China's resources, or make a deal with them. So, which one do you think they went with? Was a deal. They went with a deal. Right, and so she was intrigued by by the terms, and she went and she negotiated. And basically, for the most part, she had to turn into some men. Pretty much the men who had who had committed the most the most grievous atrocities of her eighty thousand men. Do you know how many actually got punished?
1: I'm gonna say uh, seventy four, four hundred. Okay, that's not bad.
0: But that's still one two thousandth. Wow. Of or maybe I'm getting that right. Wrong. Is it
1: two thousandth? Maybe You're asking me to th- do math.
0: Yeah, fractions are not my not my friend. It's it's a substantially small fraction of her overall forces. And of those, about 126 were executed. So really not that many people, right? Everyone else walked with their share of the, of the plunder. She divvied it up and everyone walked away rich. And many of them were actually offered military positions in the Chinese <laughs> government.
1: <laughs> that is genius. Isn't that brilliant?
0: And so at this point, now basically having... One, she retired and she married Chang Bao and they opened up a gambling house. (laughs) (laughs) So she was, she was a pirate in one way. Now she's basically a casino owner in the the other way. That is awesome. She died in 1844, a grandmother.
1: Oh my God.
0: Age 69.
1: That is incredible. Isn't it? That is one of the coolest stories I think we've, we've ever, uh, we've ever told here on, on That is so cool. You know what was so funny is while you're telling me this story, I'm thinking, God, this would be so cool if it was a TV show. And so I got on my and Maggie iPad. Maggie Q, right? Yes.
0: Yeah, Maggie Q is, is going to play Shang Chi. Yeah.
1: Red Flag is what it's going to be called if a if a network picks it up. I guess they've been shopping it around. Oh, for they a few have months. to.
0: They have to, folks. If they if they don't, you need to email these people and make sure it happens. Yes. exactly. No, it's great. It's so and actually, there was a little bit of influence. The pirate queen that was displayed in the third Pirates of the Caribbean movie was based off of. Okay. Shang Chi
1: makes sense. Makes sense.
0: So of course they exager- ex- they exaggerated her a little bit. Oh yeah, but because uh, she wasn't in the Pirates movies, she was blind and she was not blind. No. no, no. If you want to talk about ancient, well, this isn't ancient. You want to talk about badass women? I mean, Shang Chi get... is like the the definition of it.
1: Because well, not only is she a, you know an accomplished soldier and and warrior, uh, she's a brilliant businesswoman.
0: Yeah. Exactly.
1: I mean, wow! I'm impressed, Brian. Well done. Well Well,
0: done. Don't be impressed by me. What you do? You should be impressed by me. Oh, that's right. But not not, you. Not me. You. (laughs) Not me. Me. But me, the person who uh, emailed us about Shang Chi.
1: And me, if you're listening right now, just you you know, we don't have. By the way, yeah, thank you. And we don't have to put your name on air, but I think we would like just to receive another uh, feedback email, just knowing at least your first name. Just so we can give you proper credit, we'll just email you back privately. If you don't want us to shout you out on the show, that's fine. Um, but we really would appreciate that, whoever you are.
0: Please do so. Because I had so much fun reading up on this on her that it was just, her story doesn't really have any down notes to it. It's just one high note after <laughs> yeah. another high note. It's This it's would the, make an amazing movie as well as TV show, too.
1: It's the polar opposite of Boudicca's story. <laughs> it's pretty much, right? Wow. Incredible. Well, Brian, this has been a lot of fun. This is a great episode. I had a ton of fun doing this one. Yes. Uh, Clearly, there are those women in history who have left their mark, and this is just the tip of the iceberg, ladies and gentlemen. There are so many women. Yeah,
0: we couldn't get to Eleanor Roosevelt tonight. We wanted to talk about Eleanor Roosevelt.
1: And we did, and maybe not necessarily a warrior on the battlefield per se, even though she was uh, definitely involved in the Second World War in the sense of Going out and meeting the troops and rallying sure, the troops. but definitely a
0: force to be reckoned with.
1: Oh, a force to be reckoned with and a, and a warrior for civil rights and a warrior for women's rights. And, and, and a
0: founding, founding member of the UN. She helped draft... Yeah. She she drafted the Declaration of Human Rights. She
1: pretty much convinced America to, to join the United Nations. Yeah. And was a trusted advisor to presidents proceeding not... you know, or, uh, Truman, yeah. Succeeding not just her husband, but, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah she, amazing. amazing woman. Amazing yeah. woman,
1: yeah. So we'll do an episode dedicated to, to eleanor roosevelt in the future we, we have, have to, to. Yeah. yeah uh listeners thank you so much for joining us today of course uh this is just uh, one way that you can experience nerdonomy there's many different ways you can do it if you go to our website nerdonomy.com you can see the links to all of our different social media sites where you can go on our facebook page and uh, you know leave us some uh, some links and and let us know uh, some interesting stories like we had from uh from athena with the with the pyramids and what have you let us have you share and interact with us a little bit more on online. Uh, of course, you can also email us directly. You can email me at the Brickmont at nerdonomy.com.
0: And I'm at Brian at nerdonomy.com. And of course we have our own social media accounts. We can continue this conversation personally. Uh, I'm, I'm at Brian Moriarty and he, uh, I'm at the Brickmont, yeah the Brickmont. So names are pretty straightforward.
1: Also, folks, if you can uh, dig deep into your wallets and into your hearts and go over to our website in the top right-hand corner, click on our Donate button. Uh, we would love to receive a, a little something to help keep us going here, because uh, without you listeners, we uh, we can't keep uh, making all this amazing stuff happen. If you like this episode, give us a no- donation, and uh, you know I'm sure we'll do a follow-up. There's so many more women we can talk about. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll have to definitely do a part two.
0: Well, Eric, what are we doing next week?
1: Uh, next week begins the uh, the two part finale of our uh, of our month of May. I suggest a topic, and that is the top ten craziest monarchs from history. That wasn't crazy enough. Well, you want
0: to try it? Yeah. You should be a little crazier. The ten craziest monarchs in history.
1: Yeah, that was a bit crazier. I'll give you that. Yeah.
0: You gotta do the hands with it, dude. Yeah,
1: yeah. I can. I, I. You know, I'm I'm all constricted. I, can, I don't want to hit the mic mountain the Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right, it's okay, it was a good try. <laughs> yeah. Well, until next time, stay nerdy and tune in to us next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com.
1: Goodbye. Goodbye. Eric? I don't want to make any more noise because, you know what, you're just going to freak out. Okay. So I'm just, I'm not going to do anything. Good.